Praise the Lord. I'm going to change to the um, radio mic, okay. That was so sweet in God, wasn't it? Did you feel his presence? Wasn't it? It's nothing like the presence of Jesus. Wow. Well, I prayed for someone on the way in for their body. Uh, the Lord told me last night, must study that he'd heal necks today. Somebody had a neck issue on the way in, but if there is anyone else with a challenging uh, neck condition, I'll pray for you. Um, I also saw in my spirit so strongly, forgive me, I've not started the word yet, and I nearly changed my message yesterday, because I saw a series of images in my mind as I was worshipping Jesus in my study on my own, of a lady caught in adultery, and it links with John 8, and then I saw Jesus drawing a line in the sand. I just want to say to this precious woman, because I believe this speaks to someone in this church, and I mean this by way of encouragement. Dear sister, you're forgiven. I, I feel like Jesus wants you to know that. I feel like there's someone in this room who's a female. You berate yourself for your past every day of your life. <laughs> And I want you to know that Jesus drew a line in the sand and he forgave you and he loves you. And you say, woman, where are your accusers? I believe that's prophetic. I believe we enter into the forgiveness of God academically or cerebrally, but we don't come into the forgiveness of God experientially so that we can enjoy a newfound freedom to live life under God's anointing. So some people, they, they do stuff wrong in their life, and that's it, they're finished, they're done. I, I just don't think that's the Christian gospel. And I just want to encourage that dear sister. By the way, the Lord hasn't revealed to me who this is. You'll know if I'm speaking to your heart. Um, he wants you to walk away from your past. That was mentioned in the prophetic. And leave it at the foot of the cross. It's dealt with. I'm going to start a seven-week series now. I believe the Lord's put this on my heart to do. There are so many things about the gospel of John that I love. If I were to choose a book that I would take to a desert island from the scriptures, it would be John's gospel. Just not, not even with any processing of thought. John's Gospel is my favorite book in the Bible. For many reasons, I would bore you as to say why it's my favorite book in the Bible. There are many commentaries that are dear to me in relation to John's Gospel. But let me give you one that I think you would, you would benefit from if you want to do deeper study. There's a pillar commentary series by a guy called D.A. Carson. John's Gospel. If you want a good book off Amazon that helps you unpick John's Gospel really well, that's my favourite, and there are many. It's quite highly regarded across the world. Some of you are like, I, I, I just don't care, Steve. 
that's okay too, but it would help some people go deeper. There are seven I am sayings in the Gospel of John. There are seven signs, and uh, it's beautifully constructed. A guy called Raymond Brown in the 1960s came up with a dichotomous or twofold division of the book of John. First 13 chapters he called the book of signs. The second half of the book from 13 onwards he called the book of glory because it's about the glorification of Jesus. And you can see that neat division from the Passover meal to the crucifixion of Jesus, this division between the two. And it's shaped our thinking on how we view John. But what I want to journey with you particularly over these next seven weeks is the I am sayings in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them where he distinctly wants to communicate something about himself to the hearer. You see, John wrote his, wrote his gospel with this desire that we'd wrestle with one question, who is Jesus? And the second question, what do I do with his words and teachings? Now, there are many beliefs about Jesus in the world. I'm sure you know that. David Kinnaman, a president of the Barna Research Group, who directed a national study on what Americans thought about the person of Jesus Christ, said the following about American belief on Jesus Christ. He said, there isn't much argument about whether Jesus Christ actually was a historical person, but nearly everything else about his life generates enormous and sometimes rancorous debate. So let me ask you this rhetorical question, because there'll be differences of opinion even within this room. I wonder who Jesus is to you. Who is Jesus to you? Now, for some of you think, why are you asking me that question? But for some in this room, it won't be a closed question. It won't, you want to come to a solution on that question, and that's okay. There was a time in the Christian church globally where you had to believe before you belonged. Now, praise the Lord, you can belong before you believe. Is that good? Because everyone is on a faith journey and there is an awakening to the light of the world. I've given you a foretaste of one of the other I am sayings where people come into an awareness. Oh my goodness, Jesus is this. And it changes their life. Let's begin that journey together. On the way home from band yesterday, Lewis plays in a brass band, we noticed two ladies smartly dressed with sandwich boards, big sandwich boards with writing on it. The writing said, study the Bible with us. And Lewis was very encouraged. He said, oh, Daddy, we could study the Bible with them. Why? I, I, knew, I knew these were Jehovah's Witnesses. I said, Lewis, these are precious people, but they do not believe the same as us. And we started to talk about the Jehovah's Witness belief on the Holy Spirit, which got a bit complex with Lewis. He digs deep. And then we talked about Jehovah's Witness belief on Jesus. See, if a Jehovah's Witness came to your door today, and I know many of you will have experienced that, they would downgrade Jesus in their teachings, suggesting he's not fully divine or a part of the Trinity. To them, he's not Saviour and Lord. This is where we divide company. However many points we agree on, these are fundamentals to the faith. However, in Scripture, Jesus is unequivocal about who he is. This is particularly true in John's writing. If you go to the last verse in John's Gospel, it reads like this. And I'll put it on for you so you can read it with me. 
the Gospel of John, according to John himself, the writer, said it was written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So the purpose of John's Gospel was to reveal Jesus as Messiah, or the promised one of God, and more specifically, that this Messiah is the Son of God. Now, this is a case of teaching grandma to suck eggs, isn't it, for many of you? You all seem to know this basic and fundamental thing, but we've swallowed lots of truth, and it's not been transformative to our life. This, this is incredible stuff that we're about to dig into. Jesus being God's son changes everything. See, Jesus, people say, never claimed to be God, but there's far too many scriptures where you'd have to have your tipex out to join with the Jehovah's Witness belief and say that Jesus isn't God. Another example in John's Gospel, John 8, Jesus gets in a dispute with the Pharisees and opponents of himself over claims about who their father was, i.e. the father of the Pharisees, and about who he was personally. And it's a hilarious dialogue between Jesus and his opponents as he absolutely mutilates them in brilliant conversation. Jesus was really good at standing up to his opponents. And it's reassuring to know that even Jesus had opponents. In a dispute over who his opponent's father was and who Christ claimed to be, Jesus said the following to the Pharisees, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. I had this beautiful boy in my Catholic teaching experience. He was poor, I won't tell you his name. He was rubbish at everything. He was tiny. He hadn't grown. He couldn't do maths. He couldn't do English. He'd, he was so small, his clothes would fall off him when he would try and climb over the apparatus. I really liked the kid. He, he was taken to a pantomime one Christmas with my class. And he leant into me one day and went, Mr. Kerry. I said, yes. He said, they look really real. And I leant into him a bit more and said, that's because they are real. He said his name. He thought he was at the cinema, bless him. He hadn't had much experience of life. That sort of kid who you want to take home and look after. But I was teaching RE, and one of, one of the benefits of being a Catholic school is they have some good curriculum on the person of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and so on. And we got to this point on, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I, I, I tried to bring the best out of every one of the kids that I taught. Didn't expect what I heard from this boy. I call him Ben. It wasn't his name. So, yes, Ben? What does it mean when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am? I mean, some adults wouldn't have even got that if I'd have put it in front of them. Straight as a die, he just said to me, like the voice of the Holy Spirit in the room, he said, it means that Jesus is God, Mr. Kerry, because he couldn't have lived before Abraham. Oh, my goodness. This kid's going to be a priest. He's found his vocation. Jesus was unequivocal about who he was, and when he said, before Abraham was, I am, their response in verse 59 of John 8 was that they picked up stones to stone him. Now, as a preacher, I've not yet, I've had the luck sometimes, particularly on the street or whatever, I've not yet had people stone me. But Jesus had people pick up stones and rocks to kill him 
who was taken in Nazareth, wasn't he, to the brow of the hill to be thrown off a cliff. I mean, he was properly opposed, Jesus. And on this occasion, it says, just in passing, he slipped away from them and hid himself from them in the temple grounds. Now, how did he get away from that? It's a bit mysterious. Could he have disappeared? You never know with these stories. They don't tell you everything. But the I am statements provoked his opponents. Why? Why were they so provoked as Jewish adherents? Well, in the Old Testament of the Bible, God speaks to Moses. God speaks to Moses in Exodus 3. It's also echoed in Isaiah 41, Isaiah 43. But the main verse where the I am statements are rooted in the Old Testament, I found it in Exodus 3 where Moses is at the burning bus. Bush, not burning bus, that would be really strange. I know, the, I know transport's bad sometimes, but... Moses is wondering who is sending him. Who should he say is sending him to his own people in Egypt in their captivity? And he says to God in verse 13, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, I love this bit. It says, God's words, this is my name forever. That's a powerful phrase right there. This is my name forever. No wonder they wanted to stone him. The, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, I was reading a story about a PhD student who interviewed a Jewish rabbi in America. Now, I don't know whether I'm right on this, but I think there's only about 100 people in America, 100 rabbis who actually have the privilege of writing the Torah scrolls. I think I'm right in saying that. It's a very hallowed position in Judaism. Why am I mentioning Judaism? Well, when they write what's called the Tetragrammaton, or the four-letter name of God, the I am who I am in Hebrew, the yod he vah that's what I, I am is in the Hebrew, yod he vah four letters, Tetragrammaton. When they write that, they have to have a special ritual bath before every time they write the name of God. You might laugh at that. Sort of a, this is the, the way rabbis treat the scriptures. Now, listen a bit deeper to this interview from a lady called Kimberly Burnham. And I, and I quote, There was such joy in his voice as Rabbi Kevin Hell talked about going to the river near his house to wash him in mikvah, a ritual bath, before writing the name of God in the Torah scroll he worked on. This is my favorite bit. The rabbi said, Every letter is sung out as you write. never observed that they do. You're, I don't know what they do. Hey, what do they do? Oh, hallow in the name. Every letter is sung out as you write and there's an acute awareness of being in the presence of something great. Now whether you're a Jew or a Christian or not, we have to come to a consensus that the scriptures are breathed by God, including the Old Testament. 
And if you're going to treat the scriptures in such a respectful way, I'm sure that the Holy Ghost who authored those scriptures is not going to be too far from that Jewish rabbi, whatever he thinks of Jesus. No wonder he says, there's an acute awareness of being in the presence of something great when I write the name of God. He was noting that the name of God was written in a unique quill with special ink that has a 2,000-year-old recipe. This image of the hallowed nature of yod or I am, or in the Greek, ego eimi, I am, is why the people wanted to kill Jesus for saying before Abraham was, I am. What's interesting is this favorite self-designation of God, that I am, that I am, is used by Jesus seven times beyond this, where not only does he say, I am who I am, but he puts something next to it. He wants to teach us something about himself. He not only says he's God, but he says, because I'm God, this is what I am too. And the first one we're going to look at is the fact that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. We'll come to that. But let's be clear, when Jesus applies the title, I am, to himself, he claims to be God. He's not a helper to God or a great teacher. doesn't leave room for that. He's divine. He's eternal. He's pre-existent. He's infinite. And he's a perfect being. He's Israel's God, and he's greater than Moses because he's the God of Moses. He has life in himself and can give life to us. My words now. Jesus was and is perfect deity in perfect humanity. On this basis of alone, if I'm right, we should listen to what he has to say. If Jesus is perfect deity in perfect humanity, we need to listen to what he has to say. See, Jesus' words will change our lives. God came to us and walked in human flesh and spoke to us, bringing life, light, and hope to all who will hear. I am never more convinced of the deity of Jesus and the universal reign of Jesus than when I'm in a spiritual battle with someone who has a demon. Or when I minister to someone who is formerly in the occult. It seems that the, the, the demons and the occultists know a lot more than the church about the reign of Jesus. The eternality of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, the settled position in heaven of Jesus. That, that when I've ministered to people who are heavily involved in the occult, I know this sounds over the top, but let me say something. As Jim Ormish often says, we're on the victory side. The demons know Jesus has won. Okay? They, they know Jesus has won. When Jesus said it is finished, the demons know that. And if you're wondering why it's so turbulent now, and why people are falling out globally, and why there's so much fracture in society, it's because the devil knows his time is short. And the Lord is at hand. And there isn't a safe place for a believer except for under the shadow of his wings. There isn't a safe place for us to have a foot in one camp on a Sunday and a foot in the world in the rest of the week. God says, I'm no longer allowing this middle round existence. I'm no longer allowing half-hearted Christianity. 
I'm not allowing it to be like that anymore. I'm calling the church out of the world so that it can affect the world when it goes back in. I'm calling the church to be salt and light in this season. The church is about to wake up. The church is on the cusp of something incredible. This is not emotional rhetoric to make you feel happy on a Sunday. I firmly believe that. The church is on the cusp of breakthrough. If you're wondering why this has happened and that has happened and why this person's fallen out, the devil knows his time is short. And the enemy wants us distracted. I mentioned the word distracted in this a number of times, Gene, and it was in your prophetic word, because the devil wants us distracted. Because Jesus is the bread of life. And he says that people who believe in him will have that always. And it's just what the world needs. Every time you mention Jesus to people, I was sat next to a chef on a bench in the Lake District. They can't help but tell people about Jesus. And it came out, this guy, all his family were Christians except for him. And I prayed for him. And do you know what he said to me as I left him? People can talk the talk before they've even walked the walk. He said, God bless. Well, you're nearly in, mate. But people need the bread of life. They need Jesus. They don't need churchianity or religion. They need Jesus. Let me read to you the scriptures. John 6, it's a large section, but it's important that we read all of it. Verses 25 to 58. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to to do the works of God? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. This is really reassuring. I think we have to perform our way into favor with God. Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one God has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now, church, to state the blindingly obvious, they're asking for food. Right at the beginning of chapter 6, they've had the feeding of the 5,000s. They're thinking of the guts. What sign will you do us, Jesus? So that we might believe that you're who you say you are. Completely spiritually blind, missing the most important thing. They go into this phrase, they say, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. But the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. We'll come back to that verse at the end. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That's reassuring, isn't it? For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those God the Father has given to me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. 
and I will raise them up on the last day. At this, the Jews were there that began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus' response was, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Can I just say to you, if you're feeling a drawing towards Jesus, I'll carry on reading in a minute, that is a privilege. Theologians call it provenience. I don't fully understand it, but if you're feeling drawn to the person of Jesus, I believe that's a spiritual reality. I believe that's the drawing of God. I believe that's a hand reaching out to you to pull you into the lifeboat in a world that's lost at sea. I believe it's an opportunity that you can't ignore today. If you'll hear God's voice, he will save you today. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Nearly there. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give to the life of the world. For the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on the bread will live forever. Thank you for your patience. That was a long reading, but it's important. Really important. It's God's word, isn't it? Paul tells Timothy to give himself to the public reading of scripture. We don't do it enough. Let me just say this, that the temporal distracts us as human beings. I used to have in my school reports a repeating phrase ready for this the, the crowd won't let me go on this Jeanette they'll remember it I'm going to tell them anyway there's a free free bit of uh, fun and mockery of the pastor the teachers used to say to me Stephen is parents will laugh as well easily distracted <laughs> we'll we'll find that funny easily distracted but isn't that true of us all as people See, I believe that this picture of give us bread to fill our guts versus give us the eternal bread is a picture of the Happy Meals Christianity that we have. We all follow in Jesus shouting, supersize me, Jesus. Fill my guts. Provide this, the immediate needs. So we start with our shopping list in the morning. Pray I would have peace today. Pray that safe car journey. Pray we'd, you know, you list it all. None of these things are bad. 
but we want the immediate rather than the infinite. We want the physical rather than the spiritual. We want God to make sure everything in our life is just so, and then he'll get our corner. But then those who are maturing in God get taken on a narrow and difficult way. Jesus said that would be the nature of the walk of the true believer. And the the true believer is then found in a place where they're pleased to God for the immediate, for the simple things, for the physical, are not met. And God is testing us in the wilderness of that moment and saying, do you want the infinite over the immediate? Do you want me over the McDonald's Happy Meal Christianity? Do you want God? God is the question. You know, many in the church, I know this from the pastorates I've been in, most people just want sugar. Give, give me sugar, dummy Christianity, pastor. Just tell me God loves me. I don't want to go deeper. I don't want to learn that. You're too complicated. You're too long. This, that, and the other. I'm not sure that's receiving with meekness the word of God. I'm sure that's not like the rabbi that hallowed every word. I'm not sure that people who have that attitude will then go into their week and dig deep into the scriptures hungry for the Lord. See, our hunger determines our behavior. Colin Dye said, evangelists come in and shout ice cream to the church. Yay, everyone comes running. Miracles, signs, wonders, ice cream. And then the pastor has to feed them liver and onions. I remember Colin Dye saying that to the trainee pastors from Kensington Temple. See, it's so easy to seek a comfortable pathway, to be absorbed with the immediate rather than to seek the infinite, i.e. God. But let me say this, church, we only grow to the depth that we know. You can only take people as far as you've gone. For me, I am always identifying new leaders, always looking around. But the world looks for fleshly slickness. God looks for people who go deep in the word and the spirit. God looks for the hungry, not the able. God can set his hand on a Wigglesworth plumber and use him to change the world. God God doesn't need excellence in the sense of what you can bring to the table. God needs willingness. God needs a heart that says, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. And the Lord will say right back, I can use you now. If you lean on your own strength, you'll only go so far. But you get to a place where your own strength fails and you'll need my presence. And that's why Gideon, who was hiding in the winepress, who's the weakest in his clan, and his family's the weakest in all the tribe of Manasseh. And then the Lord says, Gideon, rise up, mighty man of Malah. I'm with you. It's the fact that the Lord's with Gideon that the anointing makes him a leader. It says that the anointing came on Gideon and he summoned the Abiates rites and they followed him. The qualification in spiritual leadership is the anointing of God. It's not fleshly slickness. But we're absorbed with the immediate. We, we, we're looking for our brothers of David rather than the anointed shepherd boy. We're looking for the Eliabs of this world. But God is looking for those whose hearts are fully for him. This should be encouraging to you. You shouldn't be looking back and thinking, um, this means God can use anyone. The Bible does say God can use excellent people. It says not many amongst you were strong, not many of you were eloquent not many of amongst you were lifted up high god chooses the weak things of the world but god does also use royalty and high level people as well 
Let's not be unclear on that. But we only grow to the depth that we know. And for Christians, growth is a choice. I read that in Ed, Ed, Lewis's, Ed, Ed Lewis Cole's book, Strong Men in Tough Times. He said, we only grow when we choose to grow. Growth is a choice. It's different to biological growth. Growth is a choice to invest in time with the Lord and time in his word. So how deep are you, church, in the word of God? I, I, I rejoice in Dave Halliwell. So since he's been saved, he's been digging into the word. He's been hungry for the word. You know. Not half. Well, that's, isn't that a guy who wants God? If the word of God pictures who God is, isn't that someone who's longing for God himself? Many of us are satisfied with Janet and John Christianity, and the Lord is calling us deeper. See, the crowd were looking for, for free bread. They were looking for more free bread, not more of Jesus. Show us what signs you can do, Jesus. I heard Moses made manna in the wilderness for the people to eat. What are you going to do to fill my belly? Jesus said, you're not looking for the right stuff. You're spiritually blind. See, their quick and easy approach, which was a kind of fast food spirituality, speaks of the blindness and shallowness of much of the church. We follow Jesus up to the point where it feels nice. We like community, but we avoid connection with the unlovely. We won't sit with the beggar or the smelly tramp. We like the ones who are like us, who think on our level, who are good enough to be our peers. But God, when he moves by his spirit, I was talking to Margaret and Peter in their home the other day. When God moves on a people like the early days of this church, the hand of God was so on them that it was family, wasn't it? Real family. Real family. And this is what we need to be praying for, koinonia that connects. Real family. That's a work of the Spirit. That's not something you try for. Something that God does amongst you. It's a fellowship in and by the Holy Spirit, Paul says to the Philippians. We enjoy the buffet. Who likes a good buffet? But we don't like serving in the kitchen. Happy to take. Yeah, not as happy to give. Don't, don't be, feel beaten up with these statements. I just wrote them as examples. I'm going to get lynched on the way out. We like following leadership as long as they agree with us. We certainly won't do what the Bible says and obey those in authority. We believe the Bible as long as it doesn't challenge our sophisticated worldview, which is adapted to the changes in the world since a very patriarchal first century, and now we've come into a place of maturity that we can just move a few things out of the Bible, and we can take our favourite bits, and we'd be a bit kinder to that group in society. They're allowed to carry on sinning because we're sophisticated. When the word of God is immovable, unchangeable truth. The truth is when we adapt the Bible to ourselves, we believe ourselves and not God. So let me ask this question. Are we really journeying with Jesus? Ask yourself that question. Are we really journeying day by day? Are we hungry for him? Are we hungry for his word? Is our life under the lordship of Jesus? A commentator on John's gospel, a guy called Paul Lewis Metzger said this. We have a Christianity that is high on glitter and low on the cross. High on glitter and low on the cross. But Jesus calls us to take up our cross. 
He does it many times, Matthew 16, Luke 9 as examples, and he calls us to throw away our McDonald's toys and trinkets. And before you misplace that, don't go home and bin all your kids' McDonald's toys. I'm talking about infantile Christianity. He calls us to throw away our toys and trinkets and enter into a deep yet difficult relational journey where Christ shapes us through suffering. How is the Son of God made perfect, according to Hebrews? Through suffering. So your journey will be punctuated with suffering as a follower of Jesus Christ. There's a nice happy message for a Sunday. But God's at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. Calling us to die each day. There you go. Oh, aren't we all happy with this one? Calling you to die each day. Calling me to die each day. That's what Jesus says in Luke 9. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. We who are alive are always, always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. We're always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. See, life comes through communion with Christ that has laid its life down. If I lay my life down again, you you can do that again in this service. Say, Lord Jesus, it's not my life, it's your life. You bought me with a price, I belong to God. Then Christ comes to live through you and we're pre-empting ourselves for John 15 when we do Jesus as the vine. I am the true vine. But life flows from intimacy. Everything that you achieve on any level that matters at all in the church or in life flows out of your intimacy with Jesus. Anything. Anything. All your gifts and talents came from the Lord. It was God who created you to be that. And anything you do that our spiritual impact flows out of intimacy. This is why Jesus appears to reference communion ideas in his teaching that we read. To take him, like the communion moment, into our lives and be satisfied in him alone is the journey of the true Christian. Now listen to this. If you started to switch off, listen to this. I wrote this down this morning and the spirit of God came upon me as I wrote it. Dissatisfaction flows from a misguided pursuit. Let me read it again. Because the Lord came upon me as I wrote this. Dissatisfaction flows from a misguided pursuit. Whenever you're starting to feel in your flesh that you're had enough in life. I've had enough. Just had enough. And you're a bit like Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction. Nothing's touching the spot. It's because we're in a misguided pursuit. Because Jesus satisfies Jesus is the bread of life. And the minute we're in that place where you can't be bothered anymore, you've had enough, and nothing is hitting the spot because we've moved away from our pursuit of him. Jesus said, whoever keep, comes to me and keeps coming to me will have bread of life, will have the water that needs to satisfy us. But our retreat from the pursuit of God puts us in a place where we try to get satisfied by fleshly things, or we try to get satisfied by box sets on TVs or particular things we eat or drink or people or traveling or whatever. Only Jesus satisfies the itch that needs to be scratched. Only Jesus. And God is calling the church to reset, I believe, through this message to a place where our hearts return to him. Dissatisfaction flows from a misguided pursuit of lesser things. Do you remember that song? I don't, I don't know 
Who wrote it? Please help me if you're a muso. I just don't know. I googled it. I couldn't find it. I love it. And if you can sing it for me one week and we'll all sing it together, it's just a brilliant song. Do you remember this one? You are all I need. Jesus, you are all I need. Do you remember it? You gave away your life. Yourself a sacrifice. So, is that yours? Did you write that? I was looking for Michael Cardell. Did you write? Oh my goodness. Can you do it for some time in the future? You wrote that. That is so good. That's, I wondered why it wasn't on Google. Well, can you, you've got a better voice than me. Can you just sing it? Come on, just a little bit. Yeah, come on, keep going. I worship you. Oh my goodness, how much talent have we got in this church? I think it's a classic. This is a classic. Who wrote this? Absolutely brilliant. And the simple one's the best. You are all I need. Oh my goodness, that's an anointed song. Please do that again sometimes. I think one of your lines was, you took my place. How deeply theologically powerful is that? Jesus who took our place on the cross. Let me tell you, if you're not yet a true follower of Jesus, Jesus died for you. Can he say he loves you any more than that? Does he need to say he loves you any, any louder? He died for your sins so you can walk closely with God who loves you. Isn't that wonderful? What a great song. I can't believe Mike Johnson wrote that one. Oh, my goodness. I was Googling that for ages. I was singing with my terrible voice into my phone and Google did everything but mock me. If Google could have pulled a, pulled a face at me, it would have done. It's like, mate, it nearly, it nearly wrote back to me, Google said, mate, you're not a singer. <laughs> but Mike's words, Mike's words, you are all I need, Jesus, you're all I need. You gave away your life, yourself a sacrifice, so I might live today. You took my place, so I worship you, Jesus. I worship you. Jesus is all I need. Jesus is all you need. But we've substituted lesser things that distract us. That's where the word distraction came in in the prophetic. Away from the things that really satisfies. There was a point in the worship, I don't know if you felt it, some of you, where I, we start to enter into bliss. Do you know what I mean? There's a place in worship which is deeply spiritual, which is bliss. It's a foretaste of heaven. And it's in those moments you realize that Jesus really is all you need. He is the bread of life. He is the one that satisfies. But church, we are filled up on candy floss and cardboard. We're filled up on things that don't matter. And I, I just, I, I want to call out the worship team now. Just do one song because I'm done. And I do believe we need to make a response to God. You don't need to come out. You don't need to mob the stage. But I do want people to stand up and make their own response to God privately. And this is the response I think we should make to God's word today. Because I believe God wants to do a reset in our hearts. 
I want us to acknowledge to God that Jesus truly satisfies alone our deepest needs. That without him, whatever we have in life materially, we are empty. Can you acknowledge that today, church, to Jesus? Without him, you have nothing. For some of the people on the sound of my voice, it will be turning over their life to Jesus for the first time. If you do that when we pray in a minute, can you let me know? I'll help you to walk with Christ personally. I'll help you to know Jesus personally and grow in your, in your relationship with him. For others, it will be to acknowledge that we've sought over things that are less than Jesus. Things that we've tried to fill our life up with, just, they just don't satisfy. They, don't, they might have a moment of happiness, but no lasting joy. These things have pulled us away from Jesus. They're what I call toys and trinkets. They're happy meals for Christians. They're sugar dummies for life. But God wants to give us healthy nutrition. He wants to give us himself. And I believe that some people will have heard the truth of that word today. Can we have John playing something? And I'd like us all to stand. Obviously, if you need to go to the toilet or leave.